Hey, podcast listeners, hope you're doing well, and I hope you are winning contracts. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a minute to share something with you that's working for our clients. Our federal access knowledge base is helping companies win contracts every single day. I regularly get emails from members thanking us and saying things like, hey, I just won a $2 million contract. Many of you have seen a video that Chris Danback shot for us at GovCon. Chris won two contracts totaling $30 million. One of our members emailed me this morning and said, the turning point that opened my eyes was using federal access to establish a professional and systematic business development and RFP process. I've now won two contracts worth $480,000. Federal access is helping a lot of companies win. It can help you too. So here's the deal. I have a special offer for you. Visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers today and get started for just $29. You're going to get access Access to a digital copy of the government sales manual, over 70 strategy videos, more than 30 webinars, 300 documents and templates, and one of my favorite pieces is SME support. So when you run into any issue, any challenge at all, you can email me directly for help. So go check out the special offer today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. The link is in the description below the podcast. So go check that out today, federal-access.com forward slash game changers so you can get started for just $29 today. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. My name is Michael Lejeune and I will be your host today on Game Changers. And I want to get right into our show here today by welcoming our guests, Maria Panicelli. She is a government contracts attorney. Maria, please take a minute to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the law firm you represent. Sure. Thanks, Michael. Um, as he said, my name is Maria Panicelli. Uh, I'm a government contracting attorney with the firm of Cohen Seglius. Uh, we are a full-service law firm that covers everything from you know labor and employment uh, and commercial litigation through construction and federal contracting. Uh, I am a member of our seven-person federal contracting team, which means that my practice encompasses everything relating to federal contracts and small business procurement. Uh, This includes everything from requests for equitable adjustment and claims uh, through bid protests, size and status protests, uh, teaming agreement, joint venturing. Um, We pretty much run the gamut. Um, And what we're going to talk about today is something that I do a lot of, which is uh, small business procurement issues and particularly the most recent changes to the um, various small business regulations. Thanks, Maria. And one of the things I want to talk today about is, you know, the recent changes in government contracts law. But before I, I say anything about that, I, I, I love having people on here who specialize in this niche because I think for a lot of folks, when they think government contracting and contracts and teaming agreements, anything like that, they think, hey, I'm just going to go down to my local lawyer that's done, you know, the will for my family that, you know, for the last 12 generations or whatever, you know, they've been around forever. I I don't recommend people do that. You know, they, they could have some experience in that, but I recommend they seek out a firm like yours, person like yourself who does this day in and day out because it's just such a different type of, of law that, that you guys are practicing. And so I, I love that. And so for people that are listening, you know, this is not a firm that is just doing, you know, wills and things like that. I mean, Maria is a specialist in this, in this area. So please pay close attention to what she's going to talk about. So we're going to be talking about some of the recent changes in contract law today. 
And, you know, for many contractors, they know about like the, the all small mentor protege program. I think the mentor protege program just kind of had a, uh, kind of a revamp a little bit, but many don't know that there are a number of other changes relating to small business procurement made this year. You know, what would you say was the, the biggest change made this year? Sure. Um, as you said, I think there's been a, a lot of changes. Um, the past two years have been, I guess, a, a very tumultuous time for the small business regulations um, and the programs uh, that they rule. Um, as a lot of contractors know, but for those of, the, for those of you out there that don't, um, there's a NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, that goes around every year. And for better or worse, uh, that's kind of become the act in which a lot of things are bootstrapped in. So what that means is every year when the National Defense Authorization Act comes out, there's a lot of things in there uh, that talk about proposed changes or mandated changes to the SBA regs. So what you'll see is you'll see something come out in whatever year NDAA, um, and then you'll see, you know, sometimes a lag of a year or two. Um, then you'll see the SBA implement those changes when they issue their own final rules. So what we're dealing with now um, is uh, a lot of stuff that happened um, as, a, as a result of a rule that went into effect June 30th this, this year, but that was actually implementing numerous mandates that were made in the 2015 NDAA. Um, and to me, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the, the biggest change, I guess, but the most important and the one that I think might has the capacity to confuse as many contractors as possible and uh, you know has the biggest impact on contractors is the changes to 13 CFR 125.6, which have to do with subcontracting limitations or performance of work requirements. Hmm. Well, that that's uh, one of those that doesn't just slip off the off the tongue, right? That's an interesting one there. <laughs> could, could could you explain what those changes were and what effect they might have on contractors? Sure. And one of the things that's important to keep in mind um, when you're talking about any small business regulation um, is what the underlying purpose was um, and what goal the, the agencies are trying to fulfill when they issue these regs. Because a lot of times what you'll see is when they change the regs the way they did this year, uh, it's an attempt to you know, change them and, and make them better suited to fulfill that purpose that they, they were supposed to be fulfilling in the beginning. Um, when the federal small business set-aside programs were created, there was a large concern about what uh, you'll hear referred to as pass-through situations or uh, front company situations. Uh, and that's when, you know, you've got a large company that wants to get in on these small set-aside contracts, and so they kind of create a sham company, and they're the, the puppet master in the background pulling all the strings. And obviously, that's not what the government wants. They created these small business programs so that small businesses could, you know, get a leg up, get a foot in the door, get uh, some advantage, um, some fighting chance and a better competitive edge in getting these contracts. So the last thing the government would want to see is, you know, a large company come in, take advantage of that, and get the dollars that have been earmarked for, you know, helping small businesses expand. Um, and to avoid this problem of the pass-through company or the, the front company, the SBA thought that it would be a good idea to enact certain regulations that talked about a prime contractor having to perform a certain uh, percentage of work themselves. Uh, and in their view, what that would prevent is, you know, a large company coming in and saying, okay, we, we set up this small sham service-disabled veteran-owned company or women-owned company or 8A company. Um, we're going to put them out there, and they're going to put their foot in the door and you know, get the contract that they're eligible for that's set aside for whatever type of small business they are. Uh, but then we're really going to do the work. 
So, yeah, they're the prime contractor. Yeah, they get the contract, but we're the one doing all the work. We're getting all the money through subcontracting. Um, and in order to avoid that, the SBA said, no, no, the prime contractor on set-aside contract is going to have to perform a certain percentage of the work themselves. Um, and this was enacted at 13 CFR 125.6. Under the old version of the regulation before this year, compliance with uh, that regulation, with the performance of work requirements, was determined using a percentage threshold, which the prime contractor had to meet. Uh, that percentage varied on what type of contract it was on a, on a variety of factors. So, you know, for example, we do a lot of construction work at my firm. Um, you know, specialty construction required a contractor, a prime contractor on a small business set-aside contract to perform 25% of the work. Now, again, that's if it was a specialty construction contract. If it was a general construction contract, it would be 15%. Um, and, you know, it varied if it was services or supplies type contract as well. Usually they were 50%. Um, but the way that they had it structured created a lot of confusion as to, you know, what type of contract is this? What percentage do I have to do? Um, and a lot of contractors, we had a lot of clients come to us with questions. Nobody ever knew if they were meeting the right requirements or not. Um, the revised regulation now after June 30th this year approaches the situation a little differently. Um, the overall goal remains the same. Again, you've got to keep in mind the purpose of these regulations. They want to keep a minimum of small business dollars in small business pockets. Uh, however, as the SBA explained in the rule, the revised regulation kind of creates a shift from the concept of a required percentage, you know, that threshold that we just talked about, um, to the concept of limiting the percentage that you can spend on subcontractors. Yeah. Uh, for instance, you know, we use the example of a, a general construction contract where a contractor would have to self-perform 15% of the, the cost. Um, rather than mandate that they have to self-perform 15, they say you can't subcontract out more than 85. Um, so in other words, while the old rule created kind of a threshold, the new rule creates sort of a cap. It's a slightly different way of looking at things, um, and the reason for the switch has everything to do with a carve-out for quote-unquote similarly situated entities, which I'm going to explain in a, in a minute. Um, but it's just a different way of looking at it, basically, rather than saying you have to perform a certain amount yourself. They're kind of looking at it in the converse and saying, well, you just can't tell somebody else to perform more than this particular amount. Um, another important change under the revised regulation relates to how that percentage of work is calculated. Uh, again, I mentioned under the old rule, you know, they kind of varied it based on the type of contract. Uh, well, depending on the type of contract, you know, some self-performance requirements under the old rule were calculated using, quote-unquote, the cost of the contract incurred for personnel, while others said, you know, quote, the cost of the contract not including the cost of materials or the cost of manufacturing the supplies and products not including the cost of materials. Um, as you can tell, these are very tedious distinctions. Um, again, we got a lot of client questions about, you know, which category they fit in and how to calculate, uh, you know, these percentages based on what's the denominator and what's the numerator. Um, it often proved very difficult for contractors and admittedly sometimes for their attorneys to figure out what exactly they had to do or what work they had to perform in order to be compliant. Um, the revised regulation is much, much simpler. Uh, they've kind of streamlined it. There's, you know, less categories, and regardless of whether the contract is one for services, supplies, or construction, the subcontracting limitations are described in terms of the amount paid by the government to the prime contractor. So that's always going to be the denominator. 
Um, one important thing to keep in mind is construction contractors still have to exclude cost of materials from their calculation. But even so, this revision makes it much easier to determine exactly how much you can subcontract and still be compliant. Um, and the last change that I mentioned, this goes back to uh, the, the carve-out for quote-unquote similarly situated entity. Uh, under the revised subcontracting limitation regulations, such subcontracts will not count to the above-mentioned cap. So a similarly situated entity is an entity defined as a small business subcontractor that's the participant of the same small business program. So in other words, if you're a hub zone contractor, you can sub subcontract to another hub zone subcontractor and that doesn't count towards your cap. So just to try to, again, put this in terms of simple examples because I know this is a lot of information. Um, going back to that example I used before, under the old rule, it used to be that if you were a general construction contractor on a general construction contract, you would self-perform 15%. Now, you can't subcontract out more than 85%. And in addition, if you subcontract to a similarly situated entity, that doesn't count towards the 85%, which means that if you're currently a hub zone, small business, general construction contractor. You could sub subcontract out to another hub zone small, con small business contractor and not be making uh, you know, any progress towards that cap. Um, so it makes it a lot easier for businesses to subcontract to other businesses of their same program, which again, going back to keeping in mind the purpose that these programs are supposed to serve, that keeps small business dollars in small business pockets, but makes it a lot easier and gives small businesses a lot more flexibility uh, to work with similarly situated entities uh, as subcontractors without messing up their compliance with this regulation. Um, a common question is how to calculate compliance when subcontractors themselves enter into subcontracts. Because as a lot of us know, you know, it doesn't usually stop with first tier subcontractors. Um, this is an issue that the SBA was really concerned with when they were in the process of drafting this regulation uh, amendment. So they determined that if it was, uh, if compliance was determined by looking at first-tier subcontractors only, uh, you know, it was very possible that, again, there was that fear of the pass-through company. So they were worried a first-tier, quote-unquote, similarly situated contractor could then turn around and pass through its subcontract to a larger, otherwise not similarly situated entity. Um, that would kind of circumvent the purpose of the regulation. Uh, and that's not something that the SBA would want. So in order to address these concerns, the SBA explained in the final rule that work is not, you know, work that's not performed by either the employees of the prime contractor or that first tier similarly situated subcontractor will count towards the cap. So if you've got someone, you know, more than one tier down, then you've got to start worrying again about that going towards, in my example, the 85%. Um, again, it's always kind of a, a good idea to check in with an attorney and make sure you know that you're in the right category and who you're considering a similarly situated contractor uh, is actually a similarly situated contractor. But uh, that being said, it's a lot easier now to figure out, you know, how to comply with that regulation and if you're being compliant than it used to be under the old regulation. Well, that's that's a lot to take in there. You know, you you've mentioned the the new similarly situated entity concept uh, a few times, and so that seems really important in when you're when you're planning out all of this. Were there any other changes made to the regulations in connection with this concept? Yeah. Again, this was uh, you know keeping in mind the purpose of what the government is trying to do. This 
was meant to try to increase flexibility for small business contractors without pushing that flexibility so far that it allowed for these you know, fraudulent pass-through companies. So one thing that I think the SBA had in mind when they made these changes was, okay, great, now you know, under these subcontracting limitation regs, we've allowed small businesses to subcontract to other businesses like them without running afoul of these um, self-performance requirements. Um, but another thing that, you know, that, that could do or could mess up for a contractor is affiliation. Uh, as many contractors out there know, affiliation is, you know, the dirtiest word in federal contracting. Um, and that's something that contractors are always looking to avoid. So recognizing that, one of the other changes the SBA made in that same rule, the one that went into effect in June of last year, this, this year, this ending year now, um, is that there's kind of a carve-out where a contractor and its ostensible subcontractor are treated as joint ventures, but an ostensible subcontractor is not a similarly situated entity. So if you've got a small business that subcontracts to another small business, um, that's not going to you know, be able to be counted under a quote-unquote ostensible subcontractor analysis, and that wouldn't lead to affiliation in and of itself, um, which is another big change, again, that gives small business contractors more flexibility to subcontract with other small businesses without running into problems elsewhere. Yeah, I know, I know affiliation is one of those words that if you've been in contracting for a while, you know the word and you understand what it means. But for folks who are a little bit newer, because we do have a lot of listeners that are brand new, could you explain what affiliation is? And then, you know, it, again, it's always an important topic for contractors. You know, have there been any recent developments uh, in or changes in affiliation that are that are kind of worth mentioning today? So two questions um, for the people that don't know what is affiliation? And then the second part is, were there any changes worth discussing uh, over the last year? Sure. Um, affiliation is an important concept uh, in terms of calculating a business's size. Um, you know, when you hear small business in general everyday uh, speech. Usually you think of like a, you know, a mom and pop ice cream shop on Main Street. Uh, but small business in terms of federal government contracting is a completely different ballgame. Um, and whether or not you are quote unquote small depends on a lot of different things. Um, each contract that the government puts out has something called a NAICS code. And that, you know, sometimes you hear it called NACE or NAICS or NAICS, people pronounce it differently, but it's North American Industry Classification Code. And what that means is that the government, when they put out a contract, kind of puts that contract in a category talking about what type of work that contract is for. Again, I do a lot of work for construction, so we see a lot of the NAICS codes dealing with construction. Um, but if a contract comes out and it has a, a certain NAICS code associated with it, you then um, you know, compare that NAICS code in the NAICS code table, which is something that the SBA publishes, to figure out what your associated size standard is. And a size standard is either a number of employees or an amount of revenue, and the revenue is an average revenue over the last three years. Uh, and if you are above that number, again, either employees or uh, revenue, depending on what the SBA says your size standard is, then you are not small. So again, using a construction example, you know, if you've got a NAICS code of 237990, um, you know, that's in the construction category. Generally speaking, the, the small business size standards associated with that is going to be 36.5 million. Um, again, some of them are based on revenue, some of them are based on employees. But what that means for purposes of, you know, a contract that was just put out with that NAICS code is that any business that is over that 36.5 uh, average annual revenue for the past three years is not small. 
for purposes of that contract. If you're under it, you are small. So if the contract is set aside, meaning that only a certain type of contractor can compete for a small business, um, that's where that comes into play. Um, and the reason that affiliation matters in that context is that if two companies are affiliated, you kind of add their size together. So if you've got one company that makes, you know, their, their average annual revenue for the past three years is $10 million, uh, they would be small, you know, using the example that I used before. But if you've got another company that makes $30 million, they would also be small for purposes of my analysis before. But once those two companies are deemed affiliated, their revenues would be added together. So you've got 10 on one hand and 30 on the other. But now if they're affiliated, you've got 40. And now all of a sudden that puts both of those companies over that threshold and neither one of them would be able to compete for that small business set-aside contract with the 36.5 size standard. Um, so why companies think it's such a problem is obviously that it can destroy their small business size status if they become affiliated with another company. Um, and there's a whole host of ways that companies can become affiliated. But you know, to answer your second question, some of the uh, important changes that happened recently this year uh, deal with affiliation and kind of talk about um, either clarifying the rules about what establishes affiliation or you know, drawing different kinds of exceptions. Um, one of the most important in my line of work is the expansion of the joint venture exception to affiliation. Uh, it used to be that if two companies went ahead and formed a joint venture, uh, for the most part, with certain limited exceptions, those two companies' entities, they were considered affiliated just by, by pure uh, virtue of the joint venture itself. Um, their revenues or employees would be added, and then the joint venture was considered that combined size. However, under the, the new regulations, um, a joint venture will be considered small for federal procurement purposes as long as each individual joint venture individually qualifies as small. So that, again, is another uh, you know, regulation change this year that have provided small business contractors with a lot more flexibility. Now, if they want to team up and partner joint venture with another small business, they can do that without worrying about the fact that their combined size would put the JV over that threshold and, you know, therefore the JV couldn't compete for small business set-asides. Now they can as long as each JV member is still small. Um, another important thing that happened this year was the clarification of what types of familial relationships will result in identity of interest affiliation. Um, identity of interest affiliation is one of the types of uh, things that can lead to a finding of affiliation between two companies. Um, that's at 13 CFR 121-103F. Um, and it can be a pretty confusing concept. Um, one of the things that the government has you know, talked about and the case law has found is that if you know, family members have similar interests, you know, similar ownership interests, um, that you know, they might be considered what's called a, the, the, you know, under identity of interest, the same person, and then all of their interests would be aggregated, and then it, to the extent that they own pieces of various companies, those companies would be affiliated. Um, and it used to be a little unclear because the reg used to just kind of say family relationships or familial relationships. Um, and what they have done is they've gone ahead and clarified this year that it's not any family member. You know, if you've got your second cousin three times removed is doing business, um, you know, in the same industry as you, you're not naturally going to be considered affiliated. Uh, what relationships they're going to look at are spousal relationships, parent-child relationships, and sibling relationships. So with that clarification, it kind of, you know, narrowed down the types of relationships that are going to be a rebuttable presumption 
that companies are affiliated. Um, and they also clarified under the identity of interest affiliation that um, there would be 70% uh, economic dependence between companies uh, rule, which means that uh, if a firm in question derives 70% of its receipts from another concern, so if they're doing a ton of business with another concern, so much so that 70% of their business wouldn't have been possible with that other company, then there's going to be a presumption of affiliation. Um, under the old rule, there was no such fixed percentage. The 70% figure was something that was just kind of used regularly in case law, so they just decided to go ahead and codify it to make it easier for companies to tell if they were going to run afoul of this. Um, and those were all kind of changes to the regs themselves. Uh, one other important thing that happened was the clarification of something called the inter-affiliate sales exception. Um, and we were actually involved, my firm was involved in a case that kind of started the debate on this issue. Uh, so as I kind of went over, if you've got two companies and they're considered affiliated, uh, the way that you're going to figure out the size of those companies for purposes of figuring out if they're eligible to bid on small business contracts is to add the size of those two companies to figure out you know, what their combined revenue is. Um, or employees if you've got an employee-based size standard, but for purposes of a revenue-based size standard, you're going to add the, the respective revenues of the two companies. Um, and one of the regulations, 13 CFR 121-104A, explains how the SBA should go about calculating a company's revenue. Um, and one of the things it says is that you, know, you should exclude from that calculation any transactions between the two companies. So if you've got two companies that are deemed to be affiliated and you're talking about their average receipts, you know, any money that's passing forth between the two of those companies shouldn't be counted. Um, and we had a case where uh, you know, the SBA office had found that our client had an affiliated company um, and then the question became, okay, well, even if they're affiliated, they're, they're still under the size standard because once you do the math, they're under the threshold. Um, and in order to get there, you, know, you had to exclude all of the inter-affiliate transactions, um, which we believed was correct under the, the way the regulation was written. But the uh, OHA, Office of Hearing Appeals, didn't agree with us, and they concluded that the inter-affiliate transaction exclusion applies only if the, the two businesses were parent and sub subsidiary, um, which we believed was incorrect. Um, and there was another case shortly thereafter called 10X, um, where the OHA made a similar decision as they made in our case. Um, and when they went about uh, writing these new rules, one of the other things the SBA did was issue a press release um, kind of making it clear that those two case decisions were wrong and that we and the other lawyers in the other case were correct. Um, and what that statement said was that, you know, recent SBA size determinations and decisions of the Office of Hearing and Appeals had limited this inter-affiliate exclusion by applying it only to transactions between um, affiliates that were parents and subs. Uh, but they made it clear, the SBA did in this press release, that the regulation does not include a limitation. Um, you know, all proceeds from transactions between affiliates should be excluded. So again, what that does is kind of limit the playing field of, uh, you know, how, um, how companies can go about becoming affiliated. And even if they are affiliated, um, you know, do they really have to add in the receipts between the two of them when determining their size? Um, and now that they do not, that can help a lot of companies that are, are found affiliated to still maintain their small business size status because hopefully that keeps them under the applicable threshold. Um, so that's a big change. I think it's probably 
not one that a lot of people know about because it wasn't in a rule. It was kind of just in a press release. And obviously our firm was following it closely because it <laughs> impacted the case we were involved in. Um, but it's an important one because, you know, a lot of people assume once they're affiliated that that's it, the jig is up, um, and they're, you know, they're, there's no coming back from that. Um, but you need to really make sure to read the regulations carefully and know then, even if you're affiliated, how to go about calculating, um, you know, your combined size because there are a lot of different, um, you know, exclusions, including this, you know, new clarified uh, identity of interest, I'm sorry, not identity of interest, um, inter-affiliate exception. And because of that, uh, you know, our, our client was able to maintain their small business status once this issue was cleared up. I'm really glad we talked about this because, you know, the probably one of the most requested topics that we get is people are always asking us stuff about teaming and JVs and different things like that. And there's always a presumption of this or that situation that's going to disqualify us or, like you said, create an affiliation or or cause some sort of problem down the road. And so it actually sounds like what you from what you've shared with me that the government has made some smart decisions that make things easier for companies instead of making, you know, regulation that muddies the water or makes it harder for companies to do business. I mean that that's that's what I gather from listening to you on on this subject and just just hearing how this is a game changer for a lot of companies that would have pursued teaming in the past, but felt like it was going to, or maybe rightfully slow, it, it was going to disqualify a lot of opportunities from the relationship. And, you know, that's the whole reason, you know, companies team in the government is to not only win, but to add more opportunities to their pipeline. So hearing this gives me a lot of hope for the regulation changes that, that, you know, it's going to be easier. It's going to make it better for companies to team, um, and it's just going to explain it in a in a simpler way. So these these all seem really really important. Everything you've shared so far. Is there anything we haven't hit on? Uh, any other important changes that were made recently to the small business program regulations that you know contractors you know should be aware of, should keep their eye on, anything like that? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things that are important to keep in mind. They're not, you know, as big and maybe not game changers, but they're still things that, you know, are, are worth keeping in mind and it, you should be aware of them. There was uh, a clarification regarding recertification following a merger or acquisition um, at 13 CFR 121-404. Um, kind of just gives more information about, you know, if you've got a merger or acquisition, when you have to go about recertifying your company. Um, you know, that's something to keep in mind. If you ever go through a merger or acquisition, uh, you don't want to disqualify yourself from something you were bidding on or about to get an award for because you, you didn't follow uh, that new reg and, and do what you needed to do in terms of recertification. Um, similarly, there were some clarifications regarding hub zone certification um, to make sure that it was consistent with uh, the new changes that we talked about with subcontracting limitations. Just have to certify now that you're going to comply with those. Um, and then there were also some changes regarding who can file a size protest. Um, you know, it used to be a little bit confusing. They had double negative language in there, you know, and it said that anyone could file a size protest who had not been related for unrelated to size reasons. They've made that a little bit clearer, um, made it a little bit broader, and now it's, um, you know, it's, it's easier to tell who is able to file a size status protest when you're dealing with a small business set aside than you want to file a protest challenging the, the winner's eligibility under the small business program. Um, and I think all of those are important changes. Um, and also just to echo what you said, I think 
in terms of um, these changes, I think thematically you're absolutely right. Uh, it's made it easier to joint venture in that you know two small businesses can now joint venture um, as long as they're each individually small. It's made it easier to team because it's clarified the subcontracting limitations or self-performance requirements. Um, I think there is a recognition in the government, and I think that is what they're trending towards uh, with these regulation changes and with the, the huge all-small mentor-protege uh, developments. Uh, there's generally a, a recognition that these you know, large contractors often require a team of contracts, and as important it is, as it is to set certain things for small, aside for small businesses, uh, it's equally important to make sure that there's someone that can do it and to, you know, to help grow these small businesses. And a big part of that is a partnership uh, with other companies. And I think you're absolutely right that thematically um, that's what a lot of these, these regulation changes are really getting at, and I think we can probably expect to see a lot more changes in that direction over the upcoming years. Well, I, I got to tell you, it, it's music to everyone's ears to hear that, you know, that it, it's getting easier not only for them to be able to understand it, but um, making it easier to team, making it easier to pursue yeah. these things. I mean, you know, why have the option out there and then, you know, kind of put the handcuffs on the companies and restrict them from doing what is really the intent of the small business programs, right? You know, we want these people to work together and grow and do different things and be successful without, you know, the the companies like you, you said earlier, you know, the ones that are kind of creating the shell games. I mean, that's what we're we're really trying to protect from the shell games that happen here. But we want the, the genuine relationships to grow and flourish and, you know, for the government to get the best of the best through that. And so I think it's great that they're taking some of these steps when, you know, you don't hear a lot of those stories in government contracting or in, you know, the government regulation changes. To me, this is a success story for the way that go the government is making some of those changes. And I would really like if, if you're listening to this. You're a government contractor and you, you've thought about teaming. This is a new way to look at, at some of the teaming relationships you might have said no to in the past. So um, so, so take a, a second look at a lot of that and uh, you'll be surprised. It may open up your pipeline quite a bit. So, so anyway, thanks a lot for being on here today, Maria. This has all been really good stuff. Um, people can tell in 10 seconds of you speaking what an expert you are because it does just roll off your tongue some of this stuff and so I, I hope if people need some of your expertise I hope they pick up the phone and give you a call um, you know there's your contact information is going to be on our website later so uh, I really I hope that came across to people what an expert or what a specialist you are in this type of law and uh, they can reach out to you for any questions that that they may have so Absolutely, yeah. Please feel free. Um, like uh, like you said, I've, I'm open to any questions on any of these topics. I deal with this all day long, every day, um, and especially teaming and joint venturing. I think uh, between that and the mentor-protege stuff, that's been a, a large part of our practice ever since these regulations came out earlier this year. So uh, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I just want to take a minute to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode. Remember, you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for Game Changers for Government Contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. You can also learn more about each of our guests by visiting the official Game Changers website at rsmfederal.com forward slash Game Changers, where we'll have links to their websites, contact information, social media, and that sort of thing. And then last but not least, 
please visit our sponsor for today's episode, the Federal Access Program at rsmfederal.com forward slash FA for more information on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Changers.